in and out. Gradually start to emphasize the letting go that happens on the out breath. Feeling the air going out from the body and expanding out into the room in front and around and behind. And then it's time for the next out breath. Breathing out, feeling the space, merging mind with space, at the same time aware of your posture, your body, and your thoughts. Ah, there's the rub for in that spacious, calm state, what thoughts may come to haunt us. Meet them with kindness, welcome them, but don't give them a place to sit. Let them in the front door, let them out the back door, label them, touch them, notice thought, notice the energy of thought, dismiss the content. Notice the habitual pattern of wanting to connect with the content of thought and just relax, label thought thinking and come back. to the larger experience of the space, the breath, the posture, 75% of our awareness or attention is on that and 25% on the out breath. Yep, yep, indeed. So just take a moment. Was one that was one of the crucial members of the Dharmadhatu in New York for many years, from its earliest days. It was the you know, comptroller for many years. So, with that frame of mind, <clears throat> of it uh, being Dun season, of the last, of the worst season that probably all of us here have ever seen. Uh, the passing away of beloved Sangha members. Let's dive into something meaningful. The practice of the Dharma, putting the teachings into practice. Let's begin with our usual chant, which was not included in the book 
tablet or the reading, so I will screen share it. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Majushri, please accomplish this. Let's see, I circulated a revised uh, syllabus for this evening. I should have that from myself earlier, sorry. Oh, let's see. Tonight, our, uh, my goal or plan is to go through the basics of shamatha practice. And uh, thank you for being here, those of you that are here. And I know you're all experts in shamatha, and so you've been through this material over and over and over again. And, but I think it helps to go through it in detail because it sets up the, uh, the further presentation. And I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek, of course, since none of us probably have mastered shamatha. And we can uh, always benefit from going back to the basics. So the basics of the practice of shamatha tonight and uh, the plan for next week is to go into the progression of the practice of shamatha and then the transition to vipassana and different aspects of vipassana. And I've been trying to catch up on my laziness of not having prepared fully in advance for this course, the materials, and uh, we'll circulate the full syllabus soon. And uh, whatever else you might find helpful. So the way to meditate in terms of first the Eightfold Posture and then the, mes the methods for settling the mind in two aspects, the three essential qualities of shamatha, the four types of objects of observation for meditation, and then the progression of meditation practice. And we begin with uh, the materials by uh, John Wooden Conchal, his presentation in the Treasury of Knowledge. Is it helpful if I screen share that? Or, we, or do people have it and we just talk through it? Who, who, who prefers that we screen, that I screen share the material as I'm going through it? A couple of folks. Okay. Either way is good.
good. Stages of meditation of shamatha and vipassana from the treasury of knowledge. Shamatha, the way to meditate posture. So uh, I'll read through Kongchul's presentation in the entirety, and then we'll go through Rimshay's. And as, uh, let's see. Weaving them together is a challenging task. I should have thought of this beforehand. Let's see. Um, maybe we'll go through section by section. When meditating on shamatha, at the beginning, one's posture is rather important. Oh, no, it's just very important. How could I make that mistake? Okay, um, now uh, he gives an eightfold, which should be seated comfortably and adopt the eightfold posture described here according to the stages of meditation, which is the text by Kamala Shila. And uh, many of us are probably familiar with the sevenfold presentation of the posture. And uh, so here we have eight, and it's not like there's one new one because there's many different ones here. So, in other words, there's a number of different versions of these uh, enumerations of the posture. Control gives a couple for the body, three for the body in general, a couple for the eyes, a couple for the mouth area, and then one for the breathing, which is not normally included in the posture list. But we get the legs should be in Vajra posture or half Vajra, half Vajra lotus posture, which probably not an option for most of us, but that is the tradition. The eyes should be half closed. We normally say just uh, open in a relaxed way. The body should be held straight up. The shoulders should be level, not slanted. The gaze should be in the direction of the nose. Yeah, we'll come back to all of this. There should be, but the direction of the nose. Now, just out of curiosity, what direction is the nose? For most of us, the, the down, the direction of the nose is down. The nose points down. Does anybody have a ski slope nose that points up? <laughs> Brock, you have a ski slope nose. <laughs> can, can we agree that like the nose points in front of us? You know, what does this mean in the direction of the nose? It's like, so you're not looking left or right. Slightly at, downward. Slightly downward. So the nose goes slightly downward. Anyway, it's, it's a subtle point, but it, 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 uh, it has some significance, and we'll come back to it, and it varies, actually, in traditions. Um, there should be a slight gap between the teeth and uh, between the lips. Your teeth are not closed tight. And also your lips are not closed tight. And this is something that very few people, in my observation, do. And I, I don't do it myself, is you keep your lips open and breathe. Uh, let the air come in and out of your mouth as well as your nose. The tongue should be touching the palate, the upper part of the mouth. And the, the breathing should be natural and effortless. 
Okay, so now let's jump to uh, Trump Rinpoche's presentation before we dive into this naughty subject of the um, four types of objects of observation, which is rather naughty. Okay, so on this booklet that actually has pagination, we have uh, his presentation of how to settle into the practice. Um, in the second paragraph, he emphasizes that the reason you take your time is that you want to make everything very genuine and honest. When the gong is rung, you don't just go bam into samadhi. When you sit, you have to work with your mind and body and with everything that happens to prepare yourself. So prepare yourself. It might take a bit of time counting from 1 to 25. Very interesting. That long of a transition before you get fully into the practice. Probably not many of us do that when we sit. We just settle in right very quickly. But he's actually encouraging a gradual process. And and uh, this is from the Profound Treasury, and this is a collection of teachings given to advanced students at a three-month seminary program. So this is not just to beginners. You first sit down, be kind and gentle to yourself, be natural. Um, first, nice, settle nicely on your cushion and treat yourself well. Give yourself a good time. As the gong fades, sound of the gong fades, having settled, raise your posture. Don't straighten up right away. You could even hunch down, oh my God. Then as the gong sound fades, you raise yourself up into good posture then you can exert yourself further. And uh, ideally, doing it in that way avoids having to reshuffle your, your hand, your deck of cards later in terms of your body's deck of cards. Um, when the gong sound is sound of the gong is faded completely, you've taken your posture, then you can work with your breath. So first you give yourself a good time and you become well-disciplined. You gradually enter into a more disciplined framework. First you hear the gong, you settle, and you go out with the out-breath. Then you come back to your posture. Key phrase, come back to your posture. You go out with the out-breath, then you come back to your posture. It's different than the gap where there's nothing. You come back to your posture. That is what that says, right? Do you, do you always see that? That's what I see. That's different than just having a gap of nothingness, which is a very common way of presenting, dealing with that, the in-breath, of just this absence, total absence. He's saying you go out with the out-breath, and then you come back to your posture. Give you mind, your mind, the mind together with the breath, with the body as an overall reference point. So you don't disappear on the in-breath. I think that's a huge point. There's a lot of presentations that people do where it's like you go out with the out-breath and then there's total space. There's a lot, of, a lot of emphasis on space and dissolving into space and everything else, everything disappears, so to speak. But this is different. So... Um, there's, there's two points about it. One is that it's different than the, the total gap on the out-breath, uh, sorry, in the in-breath. And 
it also indicates it's an example of him presenting technique in a different way on different occasions. And I can't emphasize enough how important that is. We saw last week how the presentation of the practice uh, changed over time and some acknowledgement of that on his own part. But um, I think he was continually looking for how to give us uh, a feeling for meditation practice without it being completely rigid and formulaic. And so presenting different aspects on different times so that we gain the full uh, sort of full range of understanding of meditation practice and not sort of just limit ourselves to a rigid reference point of it's this way and not that way. You know, so other places, other things of that are like some places uh, he'll say you focus on the, the breath at the, at the nose and other places he says you feel the breath through the whole body. And again, people, I've heard people make a big deal of about this, but it, has, it varies. He changes. He's not a computer. <laughs> uh, let's see. Upright posture. The key. Some of the key words have a quality of freshness. You know, we don't usually think think of uh, the posture as, uh, oh, sorry, upliftedness. And then here, keep your posture fresh and clear. Sometimes it's a hand, and sometimes it's a line, and sometimes you can paint with it. Anyway, being upright brings a sense of clear perception. So we're opening up our senses when we sit upright and open our frame, open the frame of our body talks about the ayatanas, the sense fields, and connecting to them. Upright posture also helps the spine. And it clarifies depression, which is said to come from the heart. And from the seventh, eighth, and ninth vertebrae. Mary Beth, does that check out? You're a vertebrae, a vertebrae expert, right? You have vertebrae? Or are you an invertebrate? Theoretically. <laughs> Theoretically. Even. Okay, so the seventh, eighth, and ninth. Yeah. Isn't that cool? That depression right. comes from them as well as the sockets, the shoulder sockets. And with good posture, you're naturally developing inner strength. So when you sit, it's like exercise, you know, it's sort of like an exercise here. You're actually cultivating energy in your body. And we don't, we don't often pick up on this aspect of the practice, uh, but but the practice has a quality of cultivating the, the um, strength of the body as well as the mind. We normally focus on the mind and then everybody talks endlessly about, oh, getting into your body and body meditations and so forth. For him, this it's very subtle, the, the engagement of the body just through posture, through a mental framework and through breath good posture, you naturally develop your inner strength. Uh, he talks about the posture of the legs and uh, the hands. 
and he, he says this thing sometimes your hands might feel uh, as if they're as if each finger is monolithic or your tongue head or another body part is heavy and pulling you down so I don't know if other people have experienced this but you have these little sensory sort of distortions that occur as you gradually enter into practice which is not that big a deal and that's not the point of what he's talking about here the most important part of this is don't pay too much attention to those sensations because they're going to change and anybody that's practiced more than like a year knows that this stuff comes and goes and uh, so don't don't fixate on them you can adjust your posture bad posture distracts you it destroys your natural flow of your breath and the on your sense of ongoing spaciousness and if your breath breathing becomes too self-conscious that is reflected in your posture so you in other words your breathing should not be too self-conscious i.e posture is important just what control room she said uh, it's not necessary to sit in a cushion and so forth. Um, talks about why not to sit, rely on the back of the chair. It's unhealthy and leads, leads to a strained body and a weak circulation. These days, you go to meditation programs and most of us are my age or older, which is very old. And... Uh, my colleagues will generally be leaning back on the chair it's, and it's hard not to at a certain age but it's not good for you it's hard to convince people of that though you're relating with the floor the earth so the, the sense of the seat that's the most important is you're relating with the earth it's the, the principle of the ground the groundedness as opposed to floating off into space and we're talking metaphorically also you can feel the space around your body um, having an upright back is a natural is natural to the human body slouching is actually unnatural I think he means healthy and unhealthy slouching is giving into neurosis which we call setting sun by sitting upright you're proclaiming yourself to yourself and to the rest of the world that you're going to become Buddha or awake one day. And uh, this sounds, I think, metaphorical, but it's extremely literal. And, I, and I, you can uh, feel it in yourself, I think, if you're genuine with yourself and your own um, willingness to have confidence in your wakefulness. I think a lot of people these days uh, have difficulty with having confidence in their wakefulness and they're very timid in their sitting posture they don't like to sit upright and look sort of regal they feel like that's pompous or arrogant and so they sort of it's like they're hiding when they meditate anyway so that's a significant part of the of the, the posture is uprightness and opening yourself to the universe. How to 
sit on the cushion. Your meditation cushion is not a diving board. <laughs> Sometimes you go to programs and you see people sitting on the edge of the gomden or the zafu and they're like perched there and leaning forward as if they're on like a diving board. And thereby the weight is on the knees and they think it's good because it presses their knees down into the earth and they have a solid triangular posture which actually feels somewhat good in, in, in that way. But it's not a healthy posture. You'll have difficulty holding your back properly and your spine will be strained by an unnecessary bend which leads to pain and soreness in your shoulder blades and neck. And the unnecessary bend is that it pushes your lower abdomen forward too much. So you have too much of a curve in your lower spine, curve forward. Also, he's not keen on uh, putting the cushion between your legs and riding it like a, a, horse, a toy horse. It's an infantile quality. Uh, your posture is the saving grace in synchronizing mind and body. If you don't have good posture, you can never do anything. You become like a lame horse. So you really can't emphasize posture too much. It's so important. In, these, in, the, in the older days, Trump Rinpoche had us go around and correct people's posture had somebody go around because it's very hard to see what your posture looks like from the outside and it's very helpful to have an outside view on your posture I keep I keep saying that we should actually talk to people and get them to agree that we're gonna we're gonna take a photo of their profile as they're meditating <laughs> at programs and then when you meet with your MI you look at the photo and you see oh I'm jutting my neck out or something. You know, I do that from my computer. I jut my neck out. And it's very revealing when you look at people from the side, what their posture is doing. And, and it has a, a correlation to their thoughts. So anyway, uh, it's something good to pay attention to. <laughs> Somewhere I heard him say, sit like a mountain. And I really like that. Somehow or another, that works for me. Uh, the solidity and the, I don't know, power yeah. in it. Yeah, and you can't sit like a mountain unless you have the posture correct. But that is that is then the image of a proper sitting. And we'll come to that next week where he goes through the three types of well-being. So he encourages you to sit in the middle of the cushion um, emulate the Buddha on his lotus cushion. And let's see, the point of good posture is to enable you to feel your whole system all at once, everything all together. So synchronizing your body together and thereby bringing your mind into your body and your body into your mind. We usually talk about bringing your mind into your body, but we'll come to this interesting discussion he has uh, about this next week where we, we see there's an, the other way around is bringing your body into your mind. <laughs> um, let's see. Tip of your tongue is lifted to rest behind the upper front teeth. Your eyes are cast down slightly but not closed. 
So cast down slightly, but not close. And because of your posture, your breathing is regulated. I think he means you are not manipulating it intentionally, but because you have proper posture, your breathing naturally modulates itself. Paying attention to your shoulders and your abdomen is not is in the right place, not bulged out and not sucked in. Sense of straightforwardness which stems from the backbone. Your general posture and your hips being in the proper place on the cushion. And he, he talks about the different traditions going one way or another, and then Westerners we can have a, a middle way. We have access. Interesting quote we have merit of being a Westerner is we have access to all the different traditions and disciplines of Buddhism and other wisdom and helpful traditions and we can, uh, instead of like editing the teachings and just picking the ones that we like we can actually learn from all of them he talks about the universality of the, med of the proper meditation posture referencing Egyptian sculptures, I always talk about the pharaohs, the, the big huge uh, statues at, uh, of Ramses in the temple of Ramses or whatever it is. Those, they're always like very upright, those Egyptian statues and also on South American pottery. I think he's talking about the Indians, Aztec and so forth. So then he goes through the general uh, framework, guidelines for meditation practice, having a sense of space. Having a sense of space means being aware, I think, <laughs> means being aware of the space around you. So if you have hallucinations, you could come back to your body. So being aware of your space, having some room above your head so you don't feel cramped. Relaxing the gaze. Your eyes are open and your gaze is down. Traditionally, it says you should gaze should rest on the floor in front of you at a distance of the length of an ox yoke, as Cynthia uh, referenced earlier. Two to three yards, six to eight, six to nine feet. Often it's been taught that you should gaze down the line of your nose, but I suppose that depends on how big your nose is. often made fun of certain people that had very big noses. The point is just to gaze down and forward. At the same time, keep your posture and gently go out with your breath. Placing the hands, there's these two mudras, the cosmic mudra. Um, you rest your arms on your thighs and you place your hands one on top of the other, palms facing up, etc. says you don't need to hold your hands above your thighs, which puts a strain on your arms or shoulders. There's some debate about that, but anyway, um, the, uh, the suggestion is the relaxing the mind mudra in which, you're, you're, uh, in which you rest your hands on your knees, and this is more of a royal posture, somewhat tantric, which all of his presentation ends up being as you progress this path and, and learn about Tantra, you'll appreciate more and more that he's basically giving Mahamudra instruction from day one, from the very start. Um, 
it's about the double earth witnessing Udra and so forth. Breathing through uh, nose and mouth. Keep your mouth open a little as if you're saying, ah. Provide a space so that the out breath comes from both your nostrils and your mouth. Taking your seat and projecting out. It's like this is the sort of sums it up. You have a sense of openness and uprightness. You feel that you're projecting out as if you're a universal monarch or the enlightened one. You should also learn to listen to Dharma talks in this way. Upright, attentive, projecting out. Oh, let's see. When you sit, you don't have to become ego-centered thinking you're going to attain enlightenment in a couple of months or at least sometime in your life. It's an interesting statement. I'm sure all of us sort of, sort of maybe hope for that or think about that. You don't have to be that corny, but you could develop ambition and real discipline. Breathing out is famous for this subtle part of the technique, right? <clears throat> it's important to breathe normally. Your breath will be affected by posture and other things and your vision. And this, uh, if your vision is too focused, your breathing, this is a good, good one, your breathing begins to pick up and along with that comes sudden discursive thoughts, sexual fantasies, aggressive, and so forth. Better not to focus your vision, but let your vision rest. Back to that in a later presentation. Um, you place your attention on the out-breath. You just go out with the out-breath and the breath dissolves. As you breathe in, you wait, and then you go out again. When thoughts come up, you label them thinking and return to the breath. You have to be very precise. You can't miss an inch as if he's measuring thoughts. How long are your thoughts? Not think twice, thinking you are thinking, thinking. You know, so you don't label the thinking, thinking, but you're just right on the dot. You breathe, you're utterly there, and you breathe out, you dissolve and diffuse, then you come back to your posture. Again, you come back to your posture, and then you're ready for another out-breath. So in the in-breath, you connect with your posture. Radical, I know. Over and over, you come back to your posture. Breathe out and come back again. It's quite hard work. As the breath dissolves, it's becoming less important. As your breath goes out and begins to reach beyond you, there's space. You just keep breathing out and dissolving. Breathing in just happens. And so it's out, rest, out, rest. You don't use any tricks. You just put an emphasis on out. Learning how to let go. That's a hard one, huh? That takes a little while. Or maybe a lifetime. Uh, let's see. After each breath goes out, there's a gap. Not a big drop, just a gap. That gap can be felt. 
might feel it as a moment of waiting or expectation, being ready for the next out-breath. As you breathe out, ideally about 25% of your awareness is on the out-breath. So on the out-breath, there's 25% of your awareness on the breath, and 75% therefore on everything else. On the in-breath, I guess that means there's 100% of attention on everything else, or maybe 25 on the posture. simply a gap, you breathe out again. You don't scheme. The out-breath is connected with the idea of letting go. You're always breathing out. When you talk, you breathe out, etc. You develop mindfulness as you let go. The normal idea is you develop mindfulness as you sort of capture what's happening. Mindfulness is in jeopardy when you're busy projecting towards something or when your mind is distracted because you're trying to make sense of something as you're breathing out. Meditation practice, you're in the process of developing action along with non-action as you begin to touch the world. When you meditate, you have mindfulness of the breathing going out and you cut that have another mindfulness of the breathing out and you cut that. In other words, you go out with the transport and suddenly you have no transport. So here he's presenting the gap. No, no, no alternative on the in-breath. Different ways of presenting. Contradictory. Complementary. Then you start again and that way the gap of the in-breath becomes extremely spacious. This way, your practice is not based on the ongoing speed of out and in and out and in all the time. I think he means the sort of preoccupation quality of focusing on the breath continuously. Instead, a leap is involved. Maybe a miniature leap, but a leap. So the breath is a, is a, a crutch, the object. And we'll see later that there's a progression of going from... Uh, definite object to no object. And that's what he's using the breath as. That's the whole idea with letting go in the in-breath. We're starting from day one this process of letting go of an actual object. We don't say that, of course, at the beginning, because then people would let go completely of the object early on, thinking, oh, I'll just skip to the end and then they were, their experience would be mush. You might try that if you're interested. You'll find that it will be that way. Uh, Henrietta. I, I guess I was, uh, I've been confused all these years. <laughs> I always thought 25% referred to both in and out. No? You got it right there in black and white in the profound treasury. <laughs> I'm just reading what he wrote, what he said, or I guess. But, or what... uh, uh, he, he doesn't specifically address the in breath at that point. So he doesn't. I did. The, I applied the math to the uh, equation. <laughs> he see. doesn't. He's he's a little more vague. But he, yeah. there he was very precise that on the out breath it's twenty five percent. 
Uh-huh. Other places, as you're implying, he does say there's 25% attention on the breath. He doesn't say the out-breath, he just says the breath. Okay. 75% on everything else. But here he actually says on the out-breath. Mm. So again, one of those instances where he's not completely consistent, but he's finger-painting, he's giving a general sense. And part of the reason why for, for giving different instructions at different times, which, by the way, the Buddha did, you know, if you want to point fingers, so to speak, <laughs> you know, Trump Rinpoche wasn't the only guy that did this. The Buddha did this dramatically in his different turnings of the wheel of the Dharma, is you're educating the students to think for themselves and understand that different things apply at different times. There's a gradual deepening of understanding. So we go through layers of understanding and what initially seemed to be mean one thing later can be understood in different ways. So they're encouraging that process by not repeating like an automaton the same thing over and over again. But anyway, you saw there is that difference with the famous mathematical percentage. <laughs> I have to adjust my percentages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you got twenty-five, per, you know, you figure in breath is fifty percent, out breath is fifty percent. You got twenty-five percent of fifty percent is, you know, uh, already. I can't do the math, but probably you can. Uh, let's see. Then later us. on the same page, he says twenty-five percent, but he doesn't specify which breath. That's right. <laughs> Uh, let's see, follow, if you follow both, you're being too faithful and it becomes very linear. And uh, if you go out and come in again and again, that makes you very heady. You have no rest and everything is very hard work in contrast. When you go out, then nothing happens. Then you go out again and nothing happens. It's very clean cut. Here's a good part. The out-breath is threatening in a sense, but focusing on the out-breath is a much freer approach. If you allow yourself a rest as you breathe in, the out-breathing becomes more of a journey, however short that journey may be. <laughs> you simply go out with the breath. When you do so, the body becomes insignificant. <laughs> so earlier he's saying you come back to the posture. Now he's saying the body is insignificant. And space and breathing become more important. In fact, the breath is the most important part of the practice. Earlier, he, he said the posture was the most important part, but I'm not being picky. It's also come up with a sense of body, the sense of me being here. However, if there's no central authority, if your practice is purely activity in space, thoughts become transparent. So he's, he's jumping around to like a fruitional state. Of, of meditation practice. Light touch. Um, here he says, if you're just feeling the breath coming out of your nostrils, you're not feeling where it actually begins and how it flows. So here he's implying that it should come from your entire body, the breathing. At first, your sense of breathing may be very general and vague, but as your mindfulness of breathing continues, you experience the whole process very specifically. There's a pattern as your breathing goes out, sense of it really happening, so you don't have to focus on the nostrils. <laughs> uh, let's see. The practice of shamatha is environmental as well as technique-oriented. In shamatha, 25% of touch of awareness on the breath. 
seems to be about right. So here, Cynthia's just said, there's no indication of which breath. Uh, let's see, you're aware, uh, because you keep your eyes open, you see things. You, your ears are not clogged. You hear things, we don't close up our ears. I always say that to people who like are into meditating with their eyes closed. I say, why don't you, you know, plug up your ears and your nostrils. But um, you're aware of the way your clothes feel and of the temperature of the room. You're aware of your stomach being full or empty. If you took a shower, etc. You feel your hairdo. I don't know about you guys, but he felt his hairdo. And the spectacles you're wearing, whether your mouth is wet or dry or wet. All of that stuff, which leaves only about 25% of your awareness left through the breath. So we're talking very much about a, an, a, an entire environmental awareness, sphere of awareness. On the other hand, the breathing was the most important part of the practice. A little bit hard to pun, pin down. Huh? Yes, ma'am. Could could this be seen as sort of progressive, like initially when you sit down? Yes, and... that's what I was saying earlier. That that the whole idea is that there's a progression, and that's what control yeah. presents. And uh, then we have that presentation by Maichipa about the progression. And it's not evident from the way it's uh, presented by Trump Rinpoche, or at least the material is organized, but. That is definitely the the uh, way to understand this is that there's a progression from from limited to limitless boredom. Mindfulness is a way of creating obstacles to dreams and mental activities. The technique of mindfulness of breathing should provide obstacles, meaning obstacles to that obsession with discursive thought. Nuisance, you have to keep hassling back to the breath. However, unless you're able to do that efficiently, by which I think he means consistently, you will not get properly bored. If you don't get properly bored, you won't tune in with the power of the practice. One of the really amazing aspects of his presentation is the emphasis on boredom as being a really positive essential, powerful part of the practice. Everything may be happening very well on the surface, but if you're not in tune with the magic of meditation or the spiritual energy of the lineage, boredom is important because it's anti-credential, anti-entertainment. As we develop greater psychological sophistication, we appreciate this boredom. It becomes cool and refreshing like a mountain river. It's cool and refreshing because you're not plagued by discursiveness all the time. Because you've gotten bored of your habitual thought patterns. That very real and genuine boredom or cold, cool boredom plays an extremely important role. In fact, we could quite simply say that the barometer of accomplishment and meditation practice is how much boredom we create for yourself. <laughs> So, where are you on the, in, the, in your meditation practice? Let's see, I'm at about a 4.5 boredom. Trying to get up to 5.0 on my boredom scale. 
cool boredom, light boredom, an uneasy quality. So it's not like, you know, it's a totally pleasant thing. It's boredom. The word boredom is very literal, but at the same time, it's not a big deal. Cool boredom is simply another expression of the experience of well-being. It's what, like what mountains experience. How he knew what mountains experience, but he must have talked to them. The boredom thought process become less entertaining; they become transparent. And cool boredom is hopelessness at its most absolute level. He just throws that in at the end. Hopelessness. Normally, hopelessness is a dismal, negative experience. But if you've read Trungpa Rinpoche's teachings uh, a bit. Probably familiar with his interesting way of presenting hopelessness as an essential, positive, and transformative experience on the path. Okay, we label our thoughts. He says basically, you're going to spend 80% of your practice working with thoughts. You know, people have these myths and fictions and ideas that meditation, you know, we're blissfully thought-free and uh, think again. <laughs> um, so 80% is pretty good. At least it's not 100%. You should, you should feel good about that. <laughs> um, and what is the thought? Everything that takes place in your mind is a thought. People, he says, you're not trying to separate thoughts from emotions. Everybody's like the first thing when you teach meditation one of the first things that comes up is like, but what about emotions? <laughs> and he's like, no, it's just thoughts, just thoughts, same thing. And this, again, is very much like a progression thing that Henrietta brought up. So at the beginning, if you don't consider emotions just like this, the rest of all your other thoughts, you'll never transform the way that you relate with emotions and later on you can actually deal with the energy of emotions not the content really but the energy of emotions mostly the desire to fix them or get beyond them which never really happens uh, let's see along we have to accept that all experiences are just thought patterns so everything is the thought pattern everything that enters our mind is the thought pattern except for one thing the verbal label of thought sorry the non-verbal label of thinking it's the only only thing that's not labeled as thinking everything else we label as thinking your wife is right. Um, touch and go. Another way of describing the process. Um, the attitude that brings about the possibility of mindfulness is mind's awareness of itself. Talk about jumping ahead. Your mind is aware of itself, which means that you're aware that you're aware. all the way at like the third stage here now. Um, 
way. He comes back and he talks about this idea of touch and go. And we touch on, on the thought. We don't suppress thought. Touching on thought means we feel the energy of thought, the compulsion of thought, the habitual quality of thinking. Really, the idea is to understand that there is a thinker and a thought, an awareness. You're becoming aware of awareness. By having, by working with thoughts, you become aware of that you're aware of thoughts. That there's part of your mind that's aware, and part of your mind that has little content in it. At least it looks that way initially. And we touch on the content because the the way to transform our mind is to understand the nature of thought. And if we if we are focused on having a thought-free experience, we'll never learn how to work with thought on content. Just touch on it. We don't fixate on it. He says if you hang if you hang on to the awareness, touch becomes grasping. So you touch and go. You don't try to experience the whole thing, but you just let go of yourself completely halfway through the experience. You connect with the thought process and then you let go. And you go. Acknowledging states of mind. Here's another sort of contradictory. And a further touch is necessary. Touch is not simply the general awareness of being. It also applies to the individual states of mind. Aggression or lust have to be acknowledged. You don't just acknowledge them and push them off. You need to look at them without suppression or shying away. So there's a... Uh, very different than just immediately letting go of thoughts. I think the idea is that you have to let thoughts be there for a bit so that you learn how to dissolve thoughts as opposed to avoid thoughts. If you immediately shift back from thought to the breath, posture or space, you're avoiding thought process, and you're in the same realm as thinking. You're in the same mental realm. But if you're able to be present, i.e. mindfulness, mindful and aware with thought, thoughts begin to become transparent, and you're not in that dualistic realm of thinking trying not to think. Just a hypothesis, perhaps. Uh, let's see. Finally, uh, he, he talks about there's this uh, tendency to want to bottle up our thoughts and not experience the different thoughts that come up and what he's talking about, for starters, is that when we meditate for longer and longer, uh, and I mean um, for, uh, daily for longer periods of time, like as we go along the path, as opposed to like meditating for hours in one day, I'm talking about as we practice over time, we begin to experience 
more and more sort of stuff that comes up from our subconscious into our conscious. And he doesn't say this, but in my opinion, this is one of the uh, magical qualities of the breath is that it's a it's subconscious process. You don't need to be conscious of it for it to happen, of course. And by being conscious of it, you bring it from the subconscious to consciousness, and it comes along with its friends. It comes along with old memories, unresolved emotions and experiences. And this happens more and more as you practice. And there's a little bit of a, when people like do retreats, there's a little bit of a shock factor when they find like all this stuff in them. It's like, whoa, <laughs> I thought I'd gotten over that like in uh, 11th grade or something, you know? And he says, uh, your greatest problem is not that you're an aggressive or lusty person. You know, it's not that we still have all this stuff inside. The problem is that you'd like to bottle them up and put them aside, which many of us do for many years. We, we bottle them up, ignore them, try to be done with them. And we think that through meditation, we have an even better way of being done with them, putting them aside. You become an expert in deception. not very good at highlighting consistently. However, meditation practice is supposed to uncover any attempts to develop a more subtle, sophisticated form of deception. So meditation is a process of uh, unraveling self-deception. Pakyo, a residue of mindfulness. He starts talking about these essential factors of shamatha. Pakyo is conscientiousness being heedful. His description of it is a little unusual. Um, like as a residue produced when you experience on the spot is confirmed by your previous experiences. Like, what the hell is he talking about? I think he's talking about when we begin to experience um, the effect of repeated mindfulness practice. So the, the experience on the spot that's confirmed by previous experience, usually we think about it the other way around. We think my previous experience is confirmed by the experience now, I think is the more usual way to think about that. But it's that, oh, if, if I can continue to apply mindfulness, it creates a whole different framework for working with my mind and my world. And it develops this momentum called conscientiousness. And he uses, he says it refers to the, this fungus that grows on rocks. It's, and it, it uses that as a metaphor of it being like, it's this accretion of like uh, uh, developed mindfulness that sort of manifests in your, in the way you hold your mind and body, that you you have a, develop a sense of presence over time. It's, mindfulness is not to be, uh, you know, sort of looking at, on the lookout for problems, but it means being there on the spot along with your residue. So we have mindfulness and we have conscientiousness or pakya that come together. And 
together they produce the inability to shock <laughs> over time not you know theoretically or like if you know really uh, advanced practitioners they the those folks that like do all the ex, uh, studies of meditators with uh, um, electrodes or whatever they call it um, you know they find that that the shock fact re response of very mature meditators is very different than uh, most people you can't be startled and you don't panic you just have a residue of mindfulness I thought what they were finding, at least from what I've heard, when they describe that the, the big difference is not that the there isn't the same level of response. That one's different. Oh, that's a different one you're talking about? Yeah, there's two things. One is that uh, uh, they don't react to uh, painful stimuli as powerfully. In, in, most, in most people, when, when you know you're going to get shocked at certain points of time, your mind like recoils over and over again. Well, the way I've heard it described is that the that when the actual trigger stimulus happens, the, even the meditator's mind will respond to it. But the before there's not the pre meditation and the post, you know, hanging on to it. So it's like the tails before and after are completely cut off, not there. Right. So then there's a, other studies that show that the, the actual response to like loud shocking noises is way less. You know, the one you're talking about is in response to inflicted pain. And there's uh, other ones in response to large uh, surprising sounds. Anyway, mindfulness stems, also stems trenpa or recollection and Shashen, knowing. Now, he's not always the most precise teacher in the world, if I, I apologize for saying that, but mindfulness is usually the translation of Trenpa. Trenpa, or Trenpa, is Tibetan for mindfulness, which he likes to sometimes translate as recollection. And then there's this other aspect of shamatha. So mindfulness is the key aspect of shamatha, but there's also conscientiousness, pakya, we just saw, and sheshan, knowing. Trenpa can also mean wakefulness. And uh, we'll see later that part of what's going on here with uh, the way he presents these terms is that in the Mahamudra tradition, mindfulness, trenpa, and knowing Shashin get mixed together and end up being used somewhat interchangeably or with Drenpa referring to both of them. And similarly, he's put the two together as Tren Shay. Um, Drenpa, mindfulness is the process of discovery in which you're touched precisely rather than being overwhelmed. You're just experiencing precisely what comes up. You make precise discoveries about yourself constantly. With Trenpa, you have some kind of memory or recollection. Mindfulness has a quality of, of being um, attentive to the immediate past. 
like what's happening like we, we, we usually say in the present but again we know from scientific studies that we're not actually aware of the present we're aware of what's happened recently like very recently and um, when you practice mindfulness over periods of time it creates a continuity of mindfulness that has a quality of memory and traditionally the, the, the first meaning of trenpa or sati in pali smriti in sanskrit is memory and it's very much this idea of uh, uh, being mindful of something like if you're in a, a building with a low ceiling is the traditional example you know be mindful that the ceilings are low and that the doorways are even lower so that you don't bang your head on them so you constantly keep that in mind Shashan, knowing is check on the recollection checking on the mindfulness Shashan means knowing as it is and this is uh, the other key factor of my of shamatha practice Shashan is the kind of knowledge that makes you feel at home in the world it's this quality of generally knowing what's going on trenpa mindfulness uh, when it's separated from Shashan is a more precise attention to details or bare attention as it's often called where shashan is a larger um, cognitive experience that incorporates reference points and larger uh, sort of environment or geographic in both a physical and psychological sense shashan functions within the environment of Drenpa. Once you have a memory, you check it with what's happening in the present. Uh, let's see, use the analogies of, of driving in a car that's not your own. And like, you quickly sort of suss out the specifics of that car within your general which is the mindfulness factor within the general knowing of like how cars work right the main point of these is that a sense of knowing or seeing always happenings there's the potential of being wakeful opening precisely there constantly um, it's about a person that can actually be it's not like how smart you are or witty or whatever combination it's called trenchet. It's the kind of recollection that connects the past and the present together. Like, why did I, you know, why did you go into the kitchen? You go into the kitchen and you're like, why am I here again? That's the lack of mindfulness. Mindfulness is like knowing why you're doing things as you're doing them because you thought before that you should do X, Y, and Z, and that brings you to the present. Additionally, it has a sense of a warning, but he wants to correct that analogy. Not just being warned about something bad, it's realizing you should be on the dot. And the traditional analogy for uh, mindfulness and awareness that the Buddha used, this very famous analogy, is that um, a gentleman is at a, a 
a reception with the Queen of England and is wearing a, a very expensive new white suit and um, is in a very crowded room with the Queen of England receiving line and the carpet is white very pure and you're uh, you go to get uh, two drinks from the bar uh, red wine and you try to make your way back to your friend through this crowded room and people are coming at you in all directions and you're holding these wine glasses and they and they by for some reason they filled the wine glasses all the way up to the top you're trying not to spill them on your suit or on the floor or on anybody else and so you have to be completely focused on the details of the wine glasses in your hands as well as on like people around you coming at you coming at you from behind as well as in front of you so that's the the mindfulness is the precise attention on the your body and the, and the wine and then the shesha the general knowing is the awareness of the everybody else in the room he talks about this he says we know that i have a beard or earrings on and a bright red coat and stockings you know these sort of things we know generally what's going on it's a little bit like clairvoyance <laughs> little bit of a leap there okay trenchet allows you to be very sensitive and precise okay so now we shift to some of the traditional presentations of this and here we have one by the buddha himself who obviously did not come up with that image of the queen of england because this wasn't into the queen of england and uh, we have here the Mahasati Patana Sutta, which is from the, translated from the Pali. It's a greater discourse, meaning that there's a lesser discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. This is from the long discourses of the Buddha, meaning there are shorter ones. And they group them by length, believe it or not. And uh, Ananda here is recounting. That's how I heard. Ananda was a perfect scribe because he didn't understand the dharma so he could but he had perfect recall but he didn't really know understand what he was recalling so he didn't add any gloss he didn't add any sort of uh, interpretation to the to what he heard he just reported accurately what he heard and the first of it says hey guys there's this one way to purification of, of beings for the overcoming of sorrow and distress for nibbana and that is the four foundations of mindfulness that's a pretty uh, profound indication by the, the enlightened one of what to practice the four are contemplating first the body as body the body is body it's just a you know what is the body it's a body what does that mean and he lists the factors ardent it's an odd, little, odd word, not one that we find in English often. Not a very commonly used word, ardent. He was ardent. Ardent, you. Uh, clearly aware. Shashin. And mindful. Now, ardent is actually translated different, not as Pakya in Tibet, but it's very similar to the conscientiousness 
So you have these three factors that are focused on, identified and focused on as the main factors of uh, meditation, shamatha meditation in particular throughout the tradition from the Buddha to Trungpa Rinpoche. Clearly mindful, aware and mindful, and it goes, this is uh, also having put aside hankering and fretting, fretting but actually hankering is the harder one this talks about overcoming the clashes subduing the clashes which is a rare thing and the same for feelings and mind is mind and mind objects now this is the traditional version of the four foundations if you're familiar only with Trumper and Pichets, you'll see the, the terminology is quite different but, and he describes you know the some of the details of it but that's the key is is that he repeats this phrase of how how does a monk do it I've put in these little ellipses here but he repeats that same phrase for each of the four these qualities that's the key qualities for how to contemplate mindful with uh, how to contemplate the foundations of mindfulness let me see it from Long Chenpa and uh, this is in a book where we have a commentary by a great Dzogchen teacher, Nyoshal Kempo, his full name of Jamyam Dorje. He adds this, the subsequent verses teaches how to meditate with mindfulness, attentiveness, which is Sheshen, and conscientiousness. Drenpa here is the, is the phonetical way of displaying Trenpa. Mindfulness is like a virtuous hook that catches the crazed, rampant elephant of the mind, leading it away from all faults and toward what is virtuous. Rely on this from now on. In the traditional versions, mindfulness and its attentiveness and consciousness, they have a very big ethical or moral slant, big slant on like disciplined behavior. That's what Rimshe was referring to earlier when he says talks about um, uh, trenche the traditionally is that of a warning you know it's like be a good boy or a girl and uh, that's very much a hangover from the, the early presentation of Buddhism attentiveness is like an undistracted watch person watchman who affords the thief of non-virtue no opportunity protects the supreme wealth of virtue let your mind rely on it with certainty from now on conscientiousness is like a well-constructed moat like that pocket and something that like prevent presents this general um, sort of protective glaze uh, here it has you know that sort of sense of uh, threatness being threatened but Trump Rimshay tries to dispel that which prevents brigand bands of afflictive emotions from striking. It leads an army to victory over the foes of karma. Strive to guard your mind from now on. You know, so this is like, traditionally this is described as like seeing clashes attacks coming from a distance. You know, like you, you have to go to a social event, you know, in the, back in the days when we used to go to social events. And you know, it's like somebody who knows that their ex-wife or husband's going to be there, you know, and so like you prepare yourself, you know, you know, it's a ripe situation for freaking out, so 
guard yourself beforehand. Maybe you take some Valium or something, I don't know. Um, classic Mahamudra manual. Trump Rinpoche was quite fond of boon beams of Mahamudra. I, I have a question. Yes, sir. Um, so, on attentiveness, is that awareness? Okay, so Trump Rinpoche um, later just translates Shashen as awareness. And uh, we'll come back to this. And then, uh, but many other translators tra- translate it as awareness. It's it's more frequently translated as investigation or in- introspection or attentiveness. But uh, sometimes by other translators as awareness, and then Trump Rinpoche actually ends up translating it as awareness in a talk we'll see later. And he also translates Vipassana as awareness. And we see, what, we'll, right. what we're going to see is that he affiliates Vipassana and Shashan. So like if there's a gap in your mindfulness, it's because you're aware of that. What is the that? Of, of, of not being mindful anymore. When you're, for instance, you know, when you're doing shamatha and all of a sudden you're thinking... It's awareness that brings you back. That's right. That that's correct. That's exactly correct. And that's the traditional analogy which somebody just referenced as the watchman is that shashan or awareness is a watchman that has this generalized alarm system. And so when you know when you've you've drifted off the object, your mindfulness has deteriorated, a little alarm goes off and you come back. It's like, right. oh, I'm and here have, and I'm meditating. You have that aha moment, that little dharma of aha. And, That's right. And, and then conscientiousness to me sounds like, like an attitude. That's good. That's helpful. Yeah, that's very good. It's like a general attitude about the way that we approach everything. Right. Right. So that's the big moat. That's like you're setting up like, I'm going to do it like this. Yeah, it's like setting up the perimeter. You know, so it's like a 24-hour day. Right. Okay. Ideally, the others are 24-hour day as well, but it's like concentric circles almost. Like there's conscientiousness is the largest circle. You know, and then there's a, uh, alertness or awareness is a sort of intermediate circle. And then mindfulness is very focused. Right. Well, also, though, conscientiousness sort of happens, at, I think, after you've developed some mindfulness and, and attentiveness. Totally the way Trung Grimshe was, was describing it as this residue. Right. It's right. after you have the habit, you, you can't have uh, genuine conscientiousness. Um, without having developed mindfulness and awareness. Otherwise, it's just like this overall paranoia, you know. Like yeah, this. no, it's based on experience. Yeah, that's the other part of him, like, talking about memory. It, like, creates this this uh, uh, relationship between past experience and present experience. Right. Like the so stove, it, the hot so stove. The, this is, like, brand new for me, the conscientiousness part. I've never heard this before. So this third thing is, like, very helpful. So this is yeah, great. Yeah, it's, it's rarely talked about, these three factors, but uh, in, in more common uh, presentations today. But it's totally in the traditional. And so we see it also in Tashi Namgyal's moonbeams. 
uh, we're, you know, I'm not going to go through this in detail, but we have mindfulness. We have, and, and mindfulness, by the way, had a very complicated presentation of different types of mindfulness, which was sort of interesting, but to, to uh, get to the point. Um, Eric? Yes, ma'am. Does conscientiousness also have something to do with view? I think they all do. Developing think, a view? I think they all do. Uh-huh. I think they all do. Uh, but it, particularly alertness and conscientiousness. And, um, but I think you're, you're uh, pointing out that, yeah, the view, like developing and cultivating the view of meditation or the mm-hmm. view of like understanding how karma works and how our every moment of thought and activity and speech creates a momentum and that has the largest sphere of conscientiousness and then uh, it has a you know a medium a middle sphere and an inner sphere Uh, but yeah Hmm. i think that's a good way of looking at it as uh related to cultivating the view about our life you know what's what's our life about our our experience is permeated by impermanence and suffering and essencelessness and so forth the marks of existence but mindfulness is not forgetting forgetting a familiar object its function is to be undistracted alertness we examine the conduct of our three doors Door number one, two, and three, body, speech, and mind. Um, It's important to cultivate primarily the mindfulness and alertness that sustain the abiding state of mind and that properly undertake abandoning and adopting during enhancing conduct. Uh, It gives all these quotes, conscientiousness with that, those with that type of mindfulness and alertness, develop conscientiousness. The way that Rinpoche presented it as the sort of outgrowth. Now in the profound treasury, Pankyus presented before Trenche, but it really should be the opposite order. Um, conscientiousness is that it protects our mind from afflictive phenomena, enables us to fully practice worldly as well as transcendent virtues. Okay, so <clears throat> we're a little bit late on time here. We come back to um, control, remember control. And where am I? Page one. I don't have a number on page one. Okay. Um, the page before page two. <laughs> right after the uh, table of contents package the methods for settling the mind the objects of of observation now this is a very unusual scheme and very sort of arcane and uh, it's interesting but it's not that crucial so um, let's see if i can sort of go through this in a very uh, very uh, high level way and and then we'll stop for tonight 
but this is a scheme that comes from this famous sutra called Unraveling the Knots, where the Buddha presents there being these four different types of uh, meditative objects of observation for a yogi, a practitioner, pervasive objects, non-analytical setting, analytical focusing, and then this odd phrase, observing the limits of phenomena. What the heck are they talking about? <laughs> like the range of phenomena. Phenomena range from the varieties, which is the relative truth, the relative world that has endless varieties of appearances. And they range from that all the way to the ultimate truth, which is the mode of being, the true mode of being of phenomena, which is emptiness. And then uh, objects about the achievement of purpose, the transformation, you know, what's the goal? Then there's uh, sort of lesser objects, purifying, uh, purifying deeds from former lives. These are like purifying habitual tendencies, desire, hatred, and so forth. Uh, objects that render the mind skillful. Meditation on the aggregates, the elements, are the, um, the six elements. The uh, six entrances are the sense doors. The senses, the six uh, senses. The 12 links are the ayatanas. I'm sorry, the 12 links of dependent arising are the donas. And the appropriate, and, the, and you know what's appropriate and the inappropriate. So these are things that make you skillful in dealing with your mind and the world. The elements, I think. Uh, well, anyway, objects for purifying afflictions um, relates to achieving the absorptions as well as contemplating the Four Noble Truths to do the same. So that's his cryptic presentation. Uh, these ob an object should be chosen in accordance with the individual depending on whatever affliction is strongest from desire to discursiveness. The object of the observation should be the corresponding remedy from repulsiveness, which is the traditional object of contemplation for those filled with desire, to the rising and fall of the breath, which is the object of observation for those of us filled with discursiveness. See that the tradition has over time simplified the presentation of objects and focused on the breath. So generally people are discursive. <laughs> they vary, you know, hatred and lust, but they're all discursive. Just give the breath. <sighs> anyway, there was a, a, I thought, an excellent presentation of this by Tsongkhapa in the package. That's quite long and detailed. Um, but I want to point out there's a couple of essential parts to it. So I'm now on page something or other. What page am I on? Why is it not numbering all the pages? Uh, I'm on this page. <laughs> Sorry, it's towards the end. Objects of meditation from the great treaties on the stages of the path to enlightenment, the Lama Remchenmo, Tsongkhapa's most famous book, Tsongkhapa being the progenitor of the Galupa school, uh, the hero of uh, the Dalai Lama and so forth. The objects of meditation, universal. 
objects for purifying behavior, for developing expertise. Like uh, that's uh, science, engineering, and math, or something, right? And then the objects of meditation for purifying afflictions. The universal objects are four types: discursive images, non-discursive images, and that's the important part. The limits of existence is relative and ultimate phenomena, and how to achieve your purpose. These two types of images are posited in terms of the observer. The first is the object of insight, and the second is the object of serenity. First is the object of apashna, the second is the object of shamatha. Which is the object of, of apashna? Discursive objects. What's the object of shamatha? non-discursive objects. This is a very odd way of presenting the objects of shamatha and vipassana. For the first time it's very foreign and it takes a little while to like connect with this presentation. So we'll, we'll revisit it and uh, go through the significance and why they talk about it in this way and then it will come up and be sort of a crucial feature of how to do vipassana in this uh, presentation. So, the image. So he said two types of images. So images usually uh, brings to mind a visual object, right? We say image. We don't. We don't say like, do you remember the image of that really bad smell from yesterday? <laughs> but when they use the word image, they're really meaning the reflection of something in the mind that comes in from any one of the six senses, the six consciousnesses, sight, sound, and so forth. So don't let the image make you think it's just visual. The image is not the actual specifically characterized object. The specifically characterized object is a technical term, a uh, technical way of referring to specific phenomena that we find in the world like an instance of a table or a chair or a meditation cushion, like the one that you guys are now sitting on. You're sitting on a specifically characterized seat, whether it's a cushion or chair or a couch. But when I say the words table, chair, sorry, chair, cushion, and couch, that's what's called a generally characterized phenomenon. That's a general category. There's a category called cushions, couches, and chairs. Categories, general categories, don't exist in reality. They're conceptual extrapolations that make it easy to talk about things and discuss things. So we can talk about tables and chairs as like a group. But when you get down to it, it's very hard to define what a, a table, uh, sorry, a chair is and where the difference between a chair and a stool is. A chair and a table is. You know, at what point does a table become a chair and a chair become a table, right? You know, so this idea of chairness is a general concept. So he's saying the image is not the actual object. So when, when we're, uh, talking about a chair as an object of contemplation for meditation. We're not talking about the, the, the one that you're sitting on. We're talking about the general idea of chairs. 
So the image is not the actual specifically characterized object upon which your mind is focused, but rather the appearance of that object's aspect. The aspect of an object is the reflection or the representation of, a, of, an out, of an outer object, of like a specifically characterized object, the representation of that in your mind. So when you see a chair, or when you think about what you're sitting on, there's the actual thing you're sitting on, and then there's, in your mind, there's this concept. And that's the object. That's the image we're talking about, the appearance of that object's aspect in your mind. When you carry out analysis while observing an object, then the image is discursive since analytical thinking is present. So it's not, it's not like the image itself is discursive or not discursive. It's how we treat the image, how we relate the, to the image. If we think about the image, if we think about tableness and chairness, then we're being discursive about it. And that's traditionally called vipassana. We're analyzing, we're investigating what is chairness? How does chairness relate to what I'm sitting on? You stabilize your mind without analysis while observing an object. The image is said to be non-discursive since analytical thinking is absent. When we focus our mind on the breath, we don't analyze the breath. We don't investigate the breath. Think about like where does it start and where does it end and what color it is or what shape it is and so on and so forth. We just connect with the breath in a non-discursive way and that's shamatha. The, the interesting part about that though is that when we meditate on the breath, we're meditating on the image, so to speak, or the aspect of the breath in our mind. We think we're meditating on the real breath, but we're actually meditating on our mind's creation of the breath. That's a good one, huh? For these images, what objects of meditation are the images of? They are the images or aspects of the five objects of meditation for purifying behavior, the five objects of meditation for expertise, and the two objects of meditation for purifying afflictions, which basically sort of means everything. These, these are possible images of like everything that we can think of. And the way that we treat them in meditation distinguishes whether we're doing a Vipassana or a Shamatha type of meditation. In both cases, we're looking at the image in the mind, the representation in the mind. In Vipassana, we're looking at it discursively, in Shamatha, non-discursively. And that is a huge leap from the way Trungpa Rinpoche presents Vipassana as, as being uh, ultimate spaciousness. And that is the crux of the of the uh, quandary about how he presents Vipassana that we're going to see if we can unravel as we go further into this. Just briefly, limits of existence are the diversity of phenomena, um, that's the relative, and the real nature. Uh, this is how things exist. This is how they do not exist. They exist as emptiness. They don't exist as inherently real. 
Um, and then he, he goes through the, the rest in, in uh, very clear detail. And so then we will come back next week to um, complete this section on the sequence, the stages going from, depending upon um, concrete object to not having any object as presented uh, in the treasury of knowledge where he goes from the progression of the actual meditation on page two with a concrete support without concrete and uh, the essential nature so we'll start with that next week any Questions, comments, suggestions before we close? One, one thought that came up when you were just talking about this thing of the fact that we're meditating on our minds, uh, it, when we're meditating on the breath, that we're really meditating on the mind's creation of the breath, I think you said. And I, as you said that, I was thinking back to when we were going through all of Trump or Rinpoche's specific ways of talking about meditation on the breath and, you know, the specific instructions. So it's kind of interesting to, you know, put those two together and, and the idea that, you know, whether it's through the nostrils, as you said, or whether it's through the, you know, whatever ways we have these very specific instructions and yet as if we were actually relating with the sense experience. And yet in yeah. this, we're also talking about, we're really not. So I just, it's most explicit, <clears throat> most explicitly discussed by Trung Rinpoche in his presentation of the foundation of mindfulness of body, where he, he uses this term, the psychosomatic body. Right. That's the one where it's the flat bottom thoughts, right? Yeah, flat bottom thoughts. <laughs> so I, I think that's in next week's reading. So anything else? Uh, Andrew. I, I have this feeling that I missed something about how Pagyo and Trenche relate to each other. And I, I just like, like, I think there's like something I just missed with how you described them. Could you just like repeat like how they link unless if that's not too lengthy of a conversation? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, through uh, Robert's and Henrietta's, uh, maybe someone else's help. I came up with this idea of sight, sort of concentric circles that mindfulness right. Is folk, uh, it, also, there's a terminology that's developed in the field of, uh, I don't know, psycho psychologists or scientists that, that write about these different types of meditation. They've been doing experiments, and they say that mindfulness is focused attention. You're very focused on an object. And then awareness is open monitoring. And conscientiousness <clears throat> is a larger frame of um, general sort of preparedness or general um, concern. Uh, what Rimshay also translated as heedfulness, like a general heedfulness. It's like, uh, you know, he often uses the analogy of driving as well. It's sort of like, you know, as you get into your car, are you aware that you're going to be driving, you know, this 
immensely lethal weapon, you know, and, you know, you run over something and it's dead. You know, you, you hit something and, you know, it's dead. So, you know, um, we're so used to driving, at least those of us that don't live in New York City, <laughs> that uh, we tend to forget about that. But I think we have that general sense that, you know, driving uh, is a powerful engine. So there's that heedfulness. And then there's, uh, you know, you're looking around, checking all your mirrors, looking around at cars all around you. That's the awareness. That's shation. That's knowing. You know, like, where you are, where you're going. The ability to, like, follow street signs and get off at the right exit and be aware of the light turning red and speeding up when it's yellow and stopping when it's red, you know, things like that. And uh, and mindfulness is like is is much more precise. Your hands on the wheel, your feet's on the pedal. You, you know, if you're shifting or you're putting the blinker on, or you have your coffee that you're drinking, you try not to spill that. You know, things like that. So so it has that sense of concentric circles of focused attention on an object, uh, generalized awareness or or um, open monitoring of what's going on. You know, in meditation practice, we have a focused attention on the out-breath. And then we have an open monitoring of the posture, the, our, uh, our psychology, our sort of state of being, the space in the room. If there's other people in the room, there's an awareness of that. As he said, it's also like your hairdo, what you're wearing, your stockings, you know, things like that. <laughs> Um, and then uh, the conscientiousness is uh, like, you know, when the gong rings, you don't go out and trip, you know, uh, or like drop, you know, your glass of water and fumble and, you know, and you pay attention to what time it is and you're supposed to be somewhere and that sort of thing. So. Now we uh, close. So one more day of uh, Dun season. Be careful. They say tomorrow is the worst day, particularly now that you know about it, you're, you're cursed. If you didn't know about it, it doesn't really happen. But it's a wonderful thing that way. And uh, happy uh, New Year, auspicious New Year to, to all of you on Friday of the metal uh, oxen. And uh, so forth. Thank you very much. By this merit, may I obtain omniscience, may I defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the rigged wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound. Thank you, Ashita Losar. See you next year. Thank you. Yes, Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Thanks, Eric. Good night. Bye. Thank you.